you're not active in your community, you're not really, you're not contributing to society. And if us as a people, as Assyrians, want to be recognized for who we are and what we are as a people, we have to be active and contribute to our societies. Hey everyone, it's Peter here bringing you episode 155 of the Assyrian Podcast with Kasha John Badal Piru. What do you get when you meet a practicing pharmacist who moonlights as a priest? An interesting episode, that's for sure. I know, I know, you've started this podcast and realized it's running time. But hey, my episodes run on the long side, so you should be used to it by now. Born and raised in Turlock, California, Rasha John began his ecclesiastical education in the Assyrian Church of the East in both Syriac language and liturgical service at the hands of his father, the late Kurapiskopa Badalpiru, beginning at the age of five years. At the age of 12 years, he was ordained the Hupadiakna, or subdeacon, for Maradde Parish in Turlock, California, and served both in his liturgical role, as well as the organist for both the divine liturgy and wedding ceremonies. Asha John completed his elementary and high school education in Turlock at a time when there were not many Assyrian children enrolled in the Turlock School District. This experience was foundational in developing strong ties to his Assyrian community and his love of his Assyrian culture and identity which he continually demonstrates today via his involvement in community events centered on the Assyrian heritage. In this episode, you'll learn about how he thinks the church can better prepare the future generations of the church for the growing challenges they will face in this world. You'll also hear his sincerity and how service and serving are the cornerstone of his calling. And I think you'll walk away with inspiration to dive deep into your faith. Asha John is married to Dr. Jessica Piru, a professor at the University of the Pacific School of Pharmacy. And together they have been blessed with three beautiful daughters, Jordan, Justine, and Gianna. Before we begin, I would just like to take the opportunity to remind you to make sure you subscribe to the podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen to the podcasts. Also, if you know someone who should be a guest on the podcast or even a host in your country, please reach out to us. You can find more information on our website. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by my favorite lawyer, Tony Caligarakis and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. This episode is also sponsored by the Oshana Partners, a husband and wife real estate team. Are you considering purchasing or selling a home in Arizona or California? John and Rita are available to help make your next real estate decision into a seamless transaction. Contact the Oshanas at 209-968-9519. Get to know them a bit more by checking out their website, theoshanapartners.com. And now let's hear from Kasha John.
Rabbi Kasha, Father John, Badal Piru, welcome to the Assyrian Podcast. Thank you, Aziza Peter. Glad to be here. It is a pleasure to have you on. On, on such short notice, I really appreciate your flexibility. No, no, no worries. It's my pleasure. I'm actually very glad to be here. It's been a, been a crazy, hectic week, but we finally got together. So that's a blessing. All right. So I usually start off with, uh, what's your first memory? Your earliest memory? You know, my first memory would probably be going with my late father to the bank and we'd visit Zerli. She was a teller there. Now, now I have to kind of give you the backstory. This is 1970s Turlock. There weren't that many non quote unquote Americans that lived in Turlock. There was a decent Australian community. There was a Portuguese community, but I think Zerli and her mother were probably the only two African-Americans that we had that lived in town. So we used to go, I'd hold his hand, and we'd go to the bank, and Zerli would always give me some candy or a piece of gum. Then it was okay, because everybody knew each other. There wasn't any strangers, yeah. Uh, Probably it would be that, going with my dad. Yeah, we used to hang out a lot, yeah. So where were you born? Actually, I was born in Turlock, California. Mm-hmm. I'm the youngest of seven siblings. The My older siblings, they were all born in, in Beirut, in Lebanon. Uh, I'm the youngest. I was born here in February of 73. So Turlock, for the listeners that don't aren't really geographically aware, Turlock is in the Central Valley of California. It is, yes. It was an Assyrian settlement probably in the early, early 1900s. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Maybe even earlier. I think they came left. But yeah, the early 1900s is when the migration really began of coming into Turlock. Many of them were Assyrians from Iran that came. The weather was, it's a very Mediterranean climate, so the weather was very similar to what they experienced in Iran in terms of growing crops and planting and farming. So it was it was a very ideal location to kind of continue the life that they had in the old country here in America. So, yeah. Talk about Turlock growing up. You okay. growing up in Turlock, mid-70s, late-70s, early-80s. There weren't a lot of Assyrian students in Turlock growing up in the late 70s. There was a group of us, and we were kind of all friends. The The, the one thing I always remember is my nephew, um, who's a deacon, Shemesh Aninos, him and I, we were the only non-Bnei Iran or non Assyrians from Iran growing up in our generation. All our friends were from Iran, all our Assyrian friends. So we were the only non-Assyrians. We were the only Assyrians that were not from Iran growing up at that time. Obviously, it didn't make a difference to us. But I remember that because we were all just from different backgrounds. Each had their own story of how their parents came here, why they came here. We attended different churches, different parishes. Um, but that was a unifying force that we were all Assyrians and we were all within the same age of each other, plus or minus two, three years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we we're all really, really close in age. Yeah. And, and I, and I remember it was kind of the late seventies was that time when it was the American hostages in Iran. So, it was a different Turlock than what we know today. Yeah. You know, many people didn't know Assyrians were 
are Christians and they didn't know what our parents and what our ancestors and our forefathers had experienced in the Middle East as Christians, you know, and, and I don't want to say it was ignorance. I think it was just they didn't know. Yeah. It wasn't something they were exposed to. Even, you know, when you go through the educational system, you kind of read a chapter on Egypt when you're talking about world civilization. You have two, three pages on Assyria and Babylon, and you jump immediately into the Greco-Roman times, the establishment of democracy and Senate, and then, boom, you're jumping into the Renaissance, you know, because everything in this in countries based on Greece, Rome, the Senate, the structure, government, democracy. So I think it was just a lack of knowledge and a lack of exposure. So I, I remember we used to <laughs> we used to get in some scuffles, <laughs> and my dad was never happy about it. Sure. Yeah, but you know, it was it was a different time. But Turlock was a great place to grow up. You and know? I think when so I was I was born maybe eleven or so years okay. after you. And what I remember from social life, Assyrian community-wise, yeah. was either you went to civic club or you went to church or you went to like one of the parties that one of the other local yeah. clubs would host. Like yeah. this was kind of the extent of social life for Assyrians. It, was it much different from it, when it, you were? No, it, it was. I mean, it's you know we're in we're in the heart of the Central Valley, so yeah. you know we may say we're only a couple hours away from San Francisco. That's still two hours away from the Bay Area, mm-hmm. you know. So. You know, Turlock was a small town or a small, small city. So, and and Assyrians are a very tight-knit community, which yeah. is beautiful. Yeah. So when there were weddings, we knew each other. We were invited to weddings. Or if there was any type of Christmas party or Easter party, we were at a club or the church. We're all, we were always at church functions, dinners. This was kind of the eventful social life and then you know we you know we hung out with our friends you know before we had driver's licenses we used to ride our bikes everywhere and try to stay out as late as we could and yeah. then when we got home but you know it was worth it it was a, it was a it was a good place to grow up really and it's one of the reasons i wanted to come back when we were finishing school my wife and i because i, I didn't really want to be raising my kids bigger cities away from church away from a certain community that, that was a little scary to me to yeah. do that yeah i want you to go into what brought your family to turlock so that's uh that's an interesting story yeah. actually we were talking about it earlier so <laughs> uh so i've kind of let the cat out of the bag already with you but um well so kind of the backstory is my dad my father was born in the Nuhadra Duhok regions, Zahu in in um, would be northern Iraq now. Um, in nineteen twenty six. And my mother was born in Beirut in Lebanon in nineteen twenty seven. So she was born in Lebanon. And um my father was very young. He was six, seven years old when they had that first um, paraman during the Semele massacre. And eventually after that, they the, the interesting story is the first waves were only targeting the men and young, young, young men. So they dressed up the little boys as girls so they wouldn't be killed. And after that, they went down... Um, 
to Syria uh, with uh, Melig Yaqo. He was one of the chieftains of the, the, the Tiara tribe. And um, my father's father was one of those 40 or 50 men that went down with them. And eventually that's when they all moved from the northern Iraq region of Semele region, Dohok Nohadra, and they came down into um, Khabur where my uncle was born in Khabur, and that's where my father was um, there in the camps, the refugee camps, basically. Um, and I remember he would tell us a story that once a month, uh, the League of Nations, they would send the doctors. They'd come once a month, do checkups, give medicines. That was pretty much the extent of healthcare for them back then. Um, anyway, so he became a student of Qasha Ilyas, God rest his soul. He was a priest of our church and he was the father of uh, his beatitude, Say, God rest his soul. And it was a group of four or five boys that this is how they were taught the church and the liturgy and the, the theology and the faith and reading and writing and the language. So their teacher was a priest or he was just a Their teacher? teacher was a priest. Okay. Pasha Elias was a wow. priest, yeah. So, you know, and this was at the camp. So this is, you know, they really learned it the old-fashioned way. So so when he was 18, the, the family moved. My father's family moved back. They moved to Beirut, not back. They moved to Beirut because they had relatives there, and eventually he met my mom, and then they were married. So he was ordained. He was ordained a deacon, actually, in Khabur, yes, by... Um, um, the late Metropolitan uh, Mario Sabkhranishu, uh, a saint in our church. At what age was he? Uh, around 18. Okay. Yeah, it was around 18, give or take, yeah. yeah. So, you know, then it was common because, you know, the church needed clergy and they needed priests and they needed deacons and if you didn't have priests and deacons you couldn't celebrate the liturgy you couldn't give people communion the eucharist you couldn't baptize kids you couldn't marry you know fiancés and you know and you couldn't bury the dead you know it, it wasn't kind of the luxury we have today yeah. with it um so yeah he was ordained and then they moved to lebanon and then he worked uh for the city of Beirut as a city foreman, they would build high-rises. So he was like the foreman. And mm-hmm. he was involved with the Margiwargis parish there uh, in Sid al-Bushiriya in Lebanon, Beirut. For many years, he taught class, language class, Bible studies. And then eventually, uh, late Mar'ishay Shumun, the patriarch, Chassid Alaha, he... he Wanted to ordain my father a priest, and my father pretty much said no the first time. He asked him again later the second time. He said no. By the third time, like I said, you couldn't really refuse yeah. Marishamun three times. So he accepted it. Uh, what do you think it was about your father, your late father, that really attracted Marishamun to want to ordain him as a priest? I, I think um, he was just really dedicated to the church. He really believed in the church. He, you know, today, I think many of us, and myself included, we may sometimes dwell on negative things, whether it's in church life, personal life, work life, social life. He never dwelt on those. He looked 
at the history of the church and what the church was and what it could become again. And But he was really grounded, though, because he understood what the church went through and the persecutions it endured, him being one of them, them experiencing it from Semele. And then, you know, he had two siblings that passed away in Khabur in Syria that just lack of medical care and malnourishment. So he kind of experienced it, not obviously not to the extent of what our you know, martyrs have experienced, but, you know, they experienced, that generation experienced hardship, whether you were from Iran, Iraq, Syria, you, you experienced hardship for being an Assyrian and for being a Christian. And that grounded him in a reality that kind of connected him to the past of what the church was. But then also he always had that hope of what the church could be again. And I think that just made him very dedicated. He really believed in the church. I mean, he really believed in the church. And he was very stern about it. He was very, I don't want to say he was strict about it, but it was in his being. He believed his salvation was in the Church of the East. And this is what he believed. You know, and... You know, and he worked hard. They, I mean, all of them. It wasn't, I mean, there was a group of these priests that were ordained. They were ordained and they were trained and ordained in hardship. And they were expected to serve and fulfill the needs for the parishioners. And, and they didn't shy away from that. And I think it was that and just the fruits of his labors that Marshaman saw that and wanted to ordain him. You yeah. know. I mean, without a doubt, it sounds like... Your father was someone who took his vocation seriously. And I and I and he did, and I believe all those priests did. You know, they learned in Kempe. They were in the yeah, desert. Yeah. I mean it the wasn't hardship, like, they experienced yeah. hardship. It really it molded them into these people that they they saw something different than mm-hmm. that what I see. Yeah. You know, and That's I can true. never experience that because I've never gone through it Mm -hmm. the best i could say is oh well my father would say or i remember when he would teach me but you can't experience someone else's experiences unless you experience them right you know and i think that that generation it really grounded them and molded them into they were just real faithful priests you know and did he ever go back to Semele or that region? Never, no? never. Well, their plan, they thought they were going to come. Well, anyways, let me, and I'll come back to yeah. your question. <laughs> so, you know, he was ordained in 68 by uh, uh, thrice blessed memory, Mardenkha. Uh, in Beirut? In, in Beirut, yeah. And he was... Marshaman wanted him to go to Iran, to be a priest in Iran and help Mardenkha there. You know, that was like, I don't have any family in Iran. I don't know the language. You know, and he worked for this city. I mean, his, his, it was, you know, his life was decent there. And, you know, and he had still small children. So Marshaman was like, okay, we'll, we'll pass on this and I'll figure something out. Well, about two years later in 1970, uh, he was the parish priest here at, Maradeh in Turlock, he passed away. So then Marshaman was like, you need to go. I, I need to send a priest and that's you. So when my parents came and my older siblings, they thought they were going to come for maybe 20 years and then eventually go back to Beirut. Yeah. 
And that 20 years became like a year because the parish at Turlock, I mean, they were they were all senior citizens. They were not a lot of young people. Many of them, they had moved away, barrier L.A. or away to school. So it, it, it wasn't... They didn't imagine. They, they. I don't think they ever thought they'd be here the yeah. rest of their lives. Were the parishioners there like first generation Assyrians, like born here, but just had been kind of. Aged? It was kind of a mix. Okay. Some, some were born here, and some had come when they were really, really young. I mean, we had some parishioners at Maraday. They were four. They were born in Iraq, and they left when they were four, and they moved to Gary, Indiana. Yeah. And then from Gary, Indiana, they made their way to here to California. How that happens? Yeah. You know, so I think it was a mix of people. Okay. But I don't think they they initially, they never thought that they would live out their lives in California. But, you know, God works in mysterious ways. There's always a plan that yeah. we never know. So um, I, I want to mention actually to the listeners that your late father baptized me. And you were my telling sister. me, yeah, yeah wow. We we're talking about that, and so I mean, even to this day, a lot of a lot of my friends, whether it's parents, relatives, people in in that kind of generation who grew up here, yeah, fondly remember your father. No, that's, you know? Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad. That's we we have one view of yeah. your late father, but I, I want you to talk about kind of your experience growing up with uh, a priest as a father? Um, so we were one of the original PKs, the priest kids. That's what my daughters, you know, they, they have a group of their girlfriends and they're the PKs, the priest kids. It was different because I was the only priest kid I knew. <laughs> you know, I mean, back then, I mean, it was in, in terms of Church of the East, it was only a Mother Day Parish until Mother Day was built in 91. So for a long time, Everybody was at Turlock on Mother Day, and um, and like I said, I was the only priest's kid. I do. I mean, I some I had some friends, you know, their parents Babawate, their fathers were Shamashi, they were deacons, and I had some friends from the Catholic Church. Their 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 fathers were deacons there, but you know, when you're a priest kid, it's just another. It's at a whole other level, yeah. then you know. Um, it it was you know it was a joyful burden. I mean, it was a blessing, but there were things that we didn't get to really experience that quote unquote normal kids got. You know, we didn't have the normal trip to family trip to Disneyland. You know, I don't ever remember my father taking a vacation while he was a priest. I remember we had two weddings in Chicago. I'm not over several years. There were two family weddings in Chicago. They were actually his nephews, well, like, say, his first cousin's nephews, you know. Anyways, they were Piros. So he went, but he made sure, the you know, the weddings were obviously, ceremonies were Saturday, and the wedding's reception was Saturday. But he made sure that the Sunday there was coverage. That's twice. But I remember when they used to have meetings in Chicago with His Holiness, he'd always fly back Saturday, even if it was a real late flight, just to be at church on Sunday, so... There would always be service. So he never took a vacation that I could remember. Like, really, I I can't remember. I remember, though, he retired in September of 96. And then in December, we sent him to Australia to go see our family there after he had retired. That was like his first vacation ever. Yeah. So it was neat. It was, you know, 
shocking. How did he endure it for so long? For that many years, yeah. for that many years you know. But I think, you know, he just he really loved his parishioners. He really loved his parishioners. I mean, I think the best analogy that I had heard was like, you know, he was like their dad or grandpa. He'd be driving around with his hat on, visiting them. You know, they used to wear these old mafia fedoras, yeah. you know, and no, 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 but nobody does it now. No, no, unfortunately, I love that. Yeah, one. but all the old priests they wore these fedoras, and and they were they were they were neat. They were kind of cool cats, yeah. you know. But that you know, it, it it was a joyful burden because there were things that we kind of missed out on that normal kids got to do. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, when I think about it now, I don't know if we really did miss out on anything. I think we gained something more. So, like, for example, myself and Shemesh and Enos, every night was Sluta Daramsha, evening prayers. Every night. We were not allowed to miss. And sometimes it would just be myself, Shemesh and Enos, and my father doing Sluta Daramsha. And sometimes the deacons would come or not. You know, and they all work. And that's this is the American life. But we were never allowed to miss. We'd come home from school, and my father would be saying, homework time. And it wasn't English homework. It was Assyrian homework. <laughs> reading writing translating i mean this is kind of the things that we dealt with going through our khudra which is our liturgical one of our liturgical books you know so we would always be like just want to be normal kids and normal teenagers and we don't want to do this anymore you know like we were getting fed up but then you know i think about it now and i'm like you know that's kind of what molded me and it's made me somewhat who i am Gives me a d- real nice perspective of our church, but I mean, it. My my father was, he seemed very stern, but really he was a teddy bear at heart. He really, really was a teddy bear at heart. Mm. My mom was the one that we were scared of. <laughs> she was the one that we were scared of, not my dad. Really, you were ordained a deacon, obviously, because yes. you're a priest, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. But was being ordained a deacon by, was it kind of by force, or just like, hey, I I have to bestow some sort of rank on my child, you know, um, to involve him? I don't think it was I have to bestow a rank. I don't think it was force either. Or I don't remember it being force. But I think it was almost an expectation and I don't mean that in a negative way. And I hope the listeners won't take it in a negative way either. Yeah, yeah. But I think it was almost an expectation to serve. My father really had that outlook and that idea that to serve in the church was a blessing. And in whatever capacity. And if you could serve in the clerical role... I mean, it was a real blessing to be able to do that. And I think that's what he wanted to bestow. Not so much of just having a rank, but yeah. more, you know, this this blessing has been given to you to be able to fulfill it. Mm-hmm. Um, Were you inspired at all to, like, take on the deaconhood? I, I, I don't... I, I almost think it was just, you know... It was gonna happen. Yeah, you know, at some point. At some point, <laughs> but 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 you know, <laughs> let me. I have a funny story, and not a lot of people know this story. Actually, a few know this. So I remember I was like sixteen. So it was my father, myself, and uh, His Holiness Kadishu, the late Mardemcha, and we were visiting someone's house in the evening, 
I, and I remember this just like yesterday, because the father had been a member of the Mutuat Mara Day, was always involved, and you know the wife was a very pleasant lady, and, and they're all they're all deceased. Alamanuchun, God rest their souls, and their son is a good friend of mine. And I was like, yeah, I'm gonna go too. Why not? Yeah. You know, just gonna go see my friend. I was 16. I mean, you know. So we went, it was just us three, and then they're doing the adult thing, and my friend and I are hanging out for a couple hours or whatever. And it's time to go, and we're going, and 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 I just and I and I even remember to this day it was where my dad was driving and his holiness was sitting in the front. I was sitting in the back. Which I found it really odd because I felt like I was being chauffeured and these two were my bodyguards. <laughs> you know, because the American and the Western way is, you know, you sit in the back, but in the back. everybody would sit in the front, like mm-hmm. they rode shotgun. So, and I remember we're driving Gassi. He turns to me and asks me, and he always called me Yuchanan. And I was in a Shamasha then, I was only a Hupadiak, and I was a subject. He goes, Yuchanan, who's Moody Bait Howard? And I'm like, Gassi, my Karan, Yelpin, Khamindi Odin, you know. Like everybody wanted to be a doctor or something, like save the world. He goes, huh? He goes, Le Bait Howard Kasha Machabuch. And I was like, How in Kasha Gassi? why like <laughs> you know and it came out honestly i yeah. was 16 i was like are you serious you know and then he kind of looked and smirked he goes and i was like wow. i was like no 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 i was like this is not for me i was like and he turns to my dad goes it was just kind of you know i knew it would eventually happen and it wasn't a negative thing that I knew would eventually happen because, you know, our family's always been involved in the church and helping. So it was kind of, this is in a weird way what we do. I know that sounds very arrogant, but it, it's not meant to come out that way. Yeah. So your day job. <laughs> My day your job. Your day job, interesting, is uh, you're a pharmacist. Yeah. So, yes, I am a pharmacist. What, what was the inspiration behind pharmacy school? That's another interesting story. Money? Really. No, actually, <laughs> yes, <laughs> kind of. Uh, so when, when when I was in college, I went to UC Davis. I was an okay student, and I didn't put as much effort that I could have put into my studies. I did enough, and I did decently. But for what I was thinking I wanted to do at that point, like I didn't know, did I want to go into medicine? Did I want to go into dentistry? Did I want to do research? I was kind of all over the place. And I just, I never really put that much of an effort in terms of schooling. I mean, I was okay. You know, I wasn't very rigorous. As I, I, Now I'm very rigorous. I wasn't very rigorous. So... You know, I I used to do research as an undergrad, so I actually was accepted into the PhD program at UC Davis in the neuroscience program. Full ride, scholarship, everything. Didn't have to pay wow. a cent. So I did that for a couple of years, and I got bored really fast, like really fast. I liked the research. I just didn't like taking classes and stuff that you needed to be able to learn to be able to do the research. Right. It just really wasn't panning out for me, and... I think I just wasn't mature enough. So I, I got my master's. I finished it with the master's. And I got a job working for a biotech company at Berkeley. And that was great. I was young. I was single. And I was making some decent money. And I had no obligations besides rent that I had to pay. 
you know, so it was a it was a nice nice deal. You were living in Berkeley full time? No, no, I was I was I was actually living in San Leandro. Okay. So I commuted to Berkeley, but it was only like a 10, 12 minute drive, which yeah. wasn't bad. Were your weekends in, in Turlock? And yeah, my weekends yeah. were in Turlock, okay. you know, church, family, you know, and, you know, mom would always cook enough food to last for a month, even though you were going to be gone for a week. So yeah. I didn't have to worry about that. I'd come get my clothes washed, you know, typical Estrian boy yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, so I had it made, you know, and and it was kind of neat because the company I worked for was, was, was testing this drug on sepsis and. I was in the pharmacology toxicology department group. So I'd have to go monitor these studies once they got implemented into chimpanzees. So I get to travel, but it wasn't like these cool sites. Like I'd go to like New Iberia, Louisiana, mm. which is like five hours away from New Orleans in the middle of sugar canes. Like, you know, in places it's outside. Very desirable. No, like not places you would go spend money on a vacation, you know? <laughs> like places an hour outside of Cleveland, Ohio, or things like that. And they'd give me these crazy per diems. And I'm like, I can't know how to spend. I'd like, they'd give me, I don't know how much money I'd bring me, like 95% of it back. Be right. like, what am I going to do with this? Like, there's nothing to do. Where am I going to go, you know? But it was cool, you know? I was going out and about and whatever. So I got bored of that and I got a job at Scripps. Institute down in San Diego doing research. I didn't like my boss. <laughs> I thought she was too tough, but I think it was really just Anna Tumbelma. Uh-huh. I was lazy. So my cousin's wife was finishing pharmacy school. And she one day said, "What? why don't you think about pharmacy school? And I had never gone into a pharmacy. My parents used to get their medicines delivered from boys' pharmacy. My dad would go once a month, you know, pay the tab, and that was it. I... Had no knowledge about pharmacy. So I looked it up and I started seeing. I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting. This is neat. Sure. So I quit my job at Scripps. Just walked in and I quit. I said, we're not working out. You know, this is part ways. So I left. Told my wife. My wife was like, what are you doing? This is a job. I go, no, no, I have, I have a plan. It's a plan. She goes, you better have a plan. So I walked into a, I walked into a save-on. And I took in my resume and asked the later if I could get a job. And she looked at me and she's like, you have a master's and you have this and you want to work as a catcher. I'm like, well, I'm going to apply to pharmacy school. So I got to know if I like like this job or not. Yeah. She goes, you want me to pay you $6.10 an hour to be a cashier? I go, uh-huh. So I got a job working for $6.10 an hour being a cashier at Savon. This is an... This, no, no. This is Same. actually down in Riverside, California. Okay. My wife and I were married. She was finishing up her PhD. So that's why I was at Scripps. And I said, Bessa. So she said, you're serious. And I said, I am. So I started working for $6.10 an hour as a cashier. Wow. Yeah. So, but I, I, I really liked the job. I really liked the job. And so I applied to pharmacy school, and thank God I got in. I went to UCSF. My wife was finishing her postdoctoral work at Stanford. And even Alahute worked out well. Yeah. Thank Where God. was your home base when you were studying pharmacy school and your wife was at Stanford? Uh, well, we were married at that time. Yeah. So we were living in San Bruno. Okay. Yeah, which was good because it was a short commute for her. And for me, it was like an eight-minute drive up Skyline Boulevard right into the city. Okay. You know, so we'd always go park at Golden Gate Park, walk across the street. It was like a five-minute walk. So it worked out really well. I mean, thank God. How did you two meet? Well, we knew each other. My wife is Jessica Faridi, Jessica Piro. We knew each other from 
junior high. Um, we knew each other from junior high, high school. In junior high, many, many of us, some of us kids were part of um, um, the Naburam group. Rabbi Shura at one point, we used to live here. He was the musician. He was the like musician. Teacher, yeah. yeah, so I used to take uh, violin lessons from him. Some of the other um, kids, my friends, took uh, violin, and then there was piano, and then he had a choir. And we used to go perform at like conventions and, and whatnot, and we'd have concerts, kind of typical stuff. So we kind of met there, and we knew each other from junior high, but... I mean, we were friends, and then until we got into high school, we were in high school together, and just like we were a group of friends. I remember when you're in high school, you're a group of Assyrian friends. Your closest 40 Assyrian friends. Yeah. yeah. You know? But I always had a crush on her in high school. <laughs> I don't know if she knew or not. I always had a crush well, on she her. She knows now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wants, she better know now. <laughs> Uh, so I always had a crush on her and then, you know, college and, you know, you graduate and she went away to college and, and then, and then I didn't see her for like a year. And then we saw each other actually at a wedding in the summer once and we started talking and dating back then was way different than it is now. I mean, way, way different. There was always the parents were, I mean, parents are an obstacle now, but man, parents were a real obstacle back then. (laughs) And there wasn't texting. There wasn't any way of. It's just a house phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I had the tricks down pat, man. So, and I told her at the wedding, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to see you again. And it was a mutual friend wedding. And there was a lot of us from the old friends that were there. She's like, I have parents. And it really threw me off. And I was like, I have parents. I'm like, okay, I have parents too. Like, we all have parents. I don't get this. She's like, this, that, that. I'm like, no, no, don't worry. And she's like, okay, okay, call me tomorrow. So she gave me her number. Well, I called her. She picked up. Well, then I, anytime I would have to call her, like if she didn't pick up, I'd have to hang up after the first ring. So then she'd know it was me. Yeah. You know, it, it was things like that, that when I tell my daughters, they're like, oh, gross. Like, really, dad? I was like, there wasn't texting, Brati. Like, you couldn't like send her an instant message and yeah. say, hey, you know? Yeah. No, there was. I mean, I, I remember once I, I wanted to take her flowers for something to her house. So I was after something. So my friend, there was two of them with me. One of them was driving. And I went to her doorstep and I rang the doorbell real quick or I knocked on the door and I laid the flowers down. And I had to run because, you know, she has parents. And as I'm running across her lawn, my foot went into like a gopher hole. And just, I mean, flat, sliding across the grass. The door is opening. I mean, it was like one of those movies I'm tucking and rolling and my friends are, they're driving away now, you know, and I'm chasing them down with a lot of, with, with a lot of words in Assyrian to them. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was different, but yeah, that's, she can't leave now. We've been married for 20 something years. So she has no choice. yeah, it worked out well. You go to pharmacy school. You finish yeah. pharmacy school. I do. And then where does where is life taking you then? I was at pharmacy school at UCSF, and one of my friends said, you know, do this rotation with Walgreens for management. And I said, yeah, I don't work for Walgreens. He's like, do the rotation. You want to be a manager. And I did, not I really liked it, and I kind of made some connections. So I graduated, and I was studying for the boards. We were, we were back living, you know, in town, in Turlock. And my wife had been offered a job at uh, UOP, at the pharmacy school there, to, to be a professor there. So that was kind of set for her. And I was just studying for the boards to take them. 
because there's two boards. There was a there was the NAPLEX, which is the national exam, and we still had the California version that we had to take. You know, and then and then the person I'd spoke to um, got me in connections with people here. They wanted me to float in this, and I said, "Listen, I, I'm not going to float. I can't float. I can't staff." I, I think a lot of it back then was just my ego and my arrogance. You know, as you as you grow up, you learn. So he's like, "Well, you're new. You can't be a pharmacy manager." And I was like, "Okay, well, I'll just go work for Longs." Because it wasn't CVS back then. And and I knew, actually, my wife's uncle worked for Long's. And they were always looking for pharmacists. It was the Long's here on Giro, the old Long's. You know, they're always looking for pharmacists. Yeah. And he's like, no, 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 we'll work something out. So, you know, I, I passed the boards and took got my license. You know, went got paid the payment, got my license. And I was training with another pharmacy manager. And once I got my license, he gave me the keys to the Walgreens on coffee and said bye and left. So I was the manager, and I was there for a couple, three months, and then we went 24 hours. And I just kind of, my, my job kind of became cleanup. So I'd get sent to these pharmacies that were just destroyed. And the job would be to kind of clean them up, fix them up, retrain staff, bring in new staff, move staff, you know, customer service, things like that. And that's, I did that for a while. And then we eventually, my friend and I, uh, we opened up our own place and we had it for about five years and that was great we were talking about it before and volume was just crazy increasing but insurances it's it's the killer in america is insurances yeah. you know so an opportunity came and right it came with an offer that was really too good to resist and you know by then i was already a priest so there were certain restrictions I had in terms of what I could do and the days that I could work and availability. And and thank God, very nice of them. They, they were able to, to, to meet them and accommodate them. And it's I've been with them for almost two years now. And it's been good. Yeah, you actually mentioned it. Um, my next question was, so you, how did you decide, or maybe it wasn't your decision, or maybe it was something that you felt called to, but how did you later on in life with a successful career in pharmacy yeah. become a, an ordained uh, priest? That wasn't something that was expected. I think, how do I phrase this? I'm just going to say it like I say it. I think a lot of deacons imagine being priests because... And I don't mean that in a negative way or an arrogance or nothing, just because, you know, we serve so long with priests. There's a, a certain relationship that a deacon has with his priest that we imagine we would we would like to be serving the liturgy. We would like to be conducting a raza, the mass. And, and, and not because I think we feel we're better or there's arrogance or ego. It's just that that blessing to serve and and i think some are more drawn to it mm. than others uh, so i want you to go in what's interesting about the word shamasha i want you to go into the meaning of that well word, sham- you just said you just spoke to serving well shamasha is servant yeah that's what khalmatka yeah. means servant to serve and you know it, it's it's I believe in any rank in the church, it's service. And to be able to serve in the church and to be called to serve in the church is a blessing. Several years ago, a priest told me once when he was asking me about the priesthood and to consider it, he goes, he said, it's a joyful burden. It's a burden, but it's a joyful burden. 
you know, your life changes. And certain things that you could do, you can no longer do or dress or go or I, you kind of get what I'm saying. It, it changes. But I believe it's service. And I think some of them are drawn to it more than others. I don't really think I was really drawn to it. I could see myself doing it. And that was maybe my ego. But I wasn't really, really drawn to it. Mm-hmm. You know, and then at one point, His Holiness, Mar'awa, then it was His Grace, Mar'awa, it was the diocesan bishop in California, had, you know, had talked to me about it. You know, we had talked several times over a long span about it. And, you know, I don't think I was ready, but I don't think I was ready when I was ordained either. I don't think you're ever really ready. You know, there's no, it's like when you get married, there's no perfect time. Mm -hmm. You know, you can kind of try to make it as good as possible. Or when you have kids, there's no perfect time. And I think, obviously, to become a priest, it's a little more complicated and there's more work and thought to be put into it. And there has to be planning and there has to be training. And we do now live in a different world than the world of my father where they needed priests or otherwise they couldn't fulfill the services. Yeah, yeah. Circumstances now have changed. And the church can be more rigorous in choosing and training and developing. Mm-hmm. So the first few, you know, the conversations, I just, I, I don't think I was, I, I didn't feel a calling. Now, guess he had told me something. He goes, yeah, but the church is coming to you. That is God calling you. That is the spirit calling you. I I couldn't feel something. And like I said, I don't know, maybe that was me being doubtful, me being faithless. But I guess when the time when the time came and there were changes happening in our diocese and, and his grace had approached me and at that point I was ready to serve at a different level. Yeah. You know, not and not not to have any perks or anything, just to serve now to at serve, a different yeah. level. Because I felt I was capable, God willing, and if God allowed me to, that I was capable and I could serve at a different level mm-hmm. in the church. And it's always for the glory of Christ. A lot of times, you know, we, we, we like to hear a good job, good job, but really it's for the glory of Christ. Right. And it's to serve the people. I, I'm, 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 I'm a firm believer in serving. And I think, and, and I say this, and the listeners will take it with a grain of salt, I hope, you know, we're not even really serving God. Uh, really, God needs me a human, a sinner, with all my faults and all my quirks and all my, you know, shortcomings. He needs me to serve him. It kind of defeats the purpose of being God. But I just, I believe God uses unworthy people like us to serve humanity, to bring them back to God through the church. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really something that keeps me grounded in what the priesthood really is. You've been assigned to Sacramento. Yes. St. Mary Mission. Yes. What insights do you have from the the church, the parishioners there? So Sacramento, California, a little context Mm. for the listeners. It's the capital of California, small Syrian community. Beautiful people, great people, real faithful people. It's the issues of distanced or spread out 
You know, when we say Sacramento, everybody thinks, oh, they live here. No, they, you know, one family lives in, one or two family live in Sacramento. A couple of families live in Roseville. A family lives in Davis. Mm -hmm. Someone lives out further out. Spread out. They're they're spread out. You know, it's not, it's not very conducive to having people show up on Sundays. You know, people that live in Turlock live in Turlock. You drive five minutes or you drive 10 minutes. Yeah. In Modesto, you might live at one end of Modesto. Okay, it might take you 15, 20 minutes to get there. But I mean, it's still Modesto. Right. You know, some of the people at Sacramento have to drive 45 minutes plus to come to church. And we rent the church there. So it's not our church. So we rent the church and the services are at two o'clock in the afternoon. It's not every Sunday. People get up. In the morning, they go to church. And once that's done, they spend their day with their family or go out do stuff. Two o'clock is kind of like smack in the middle of the yeah. day, you know. And then, and it's kind of a no, no. It's a no-win situation because wintertime it gets dark faster. Yeah. Summertime, people want to do stuff on the weekend. Mm-hmm. So that's really a difficulty for second, and it's always been a difficulty. The location to the the, the church that we rent in Roseville, it's a good drive. From the Central Valley. Right. You know, and it's, and like I said, we went, and we've tried, you know, we've tried to find churches that are kind of more central, different times. It's just, there's so many, there's so much demand. And, and what hurt us, just like everybody else, with COVID, once services shut down, because since we rent the church, they shut the church down. You know, and when we were looking for other churches to rent, it was, yeah, you're like number 25 on the waiting list. Yeah, we have about 140, 150 plus Assyrians, Aturai, that live in the Sacramento area. The majority are not Church of the East. Some of them move there, you know, they retired or they moved from Bay Area, L.A., whatnot. So if you have a church that's close to you, go every Sunday. You you don't understand what a blessing it is. You know, it's 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 really difficult for them to to be able to come. But I always say, I was like, man, you know, these people, man, if they had their own church, like you know, they were a big group of people. I mean, they're real faithful. They're real mumne. You know, they're they're real. They they believe in the church. How involved are you with the Central Valley youth? So when I so listeners, when I say Central Valley for people that live in California, it's always a reference to kind of the tri cities that are within this area. Right. Modesto series to yeah. The last couple of years I haven't been as involved just because I was enrolled into a master's program in theology. So I was completing that um, during this time. Seeing from years past of my involvement in with youth with Central Valley and, and uh, Marade specifically, and for the future, our youth have it really hard right now. They're experiencing many things that, and they're experiencing them openly. And not just temptations. I mean, they are temptations, but, you know, this is what the devil's been doing now for 10,000 years. So it's not going to change. But the way these temptations are coming at them, whether from societal viewpoints, from the government, their social lives and structure of who they're with, um, it's a lot that they have to deal with that we 
or at least I, at my age, when I was their age years ago, didn't have to deal with or experience. And like I said, and if we experience, it was not openly. There is an open attack on the Christian faith. This is my opinion. No, they haven't taken up arms against us, but the way Christianity is being attacked, and I think worldwide, but we can, we'll say the Western countries, it's something that we haven't seen in the past. I don't, growing up in Turlock, we didn't experience this. I mean, once people knew you were a Christian and, you know, Assyrians are Christians, they, they had a different outlook on you. I mean, we had, we had a mayor that was Assyrian who served two terms. We had a city council member. You know, we've had Assyrians work in DMV. I mean, Assyrians are in every role right now in, yeah. in Turlock and Modesto. So we've never, we haven't experienced these tribulations that our youth are experiencing now. One aspect, one, one issue I think is when we were growing up, our parents were still fresh from the old country. So there were just certain things that were just taboo. Now, whether they were taboo, wrong, because we were a Christian or because we were Assyrian, we didn't really know because they had kind of melded together. You know, there was a, mm-hmm. it was a link between them, you know. So now those ideas, those taboos are not really existing anymore. Yeah. And I think it's because it's another generation of Assyrians and we've assimilated a little bit more. We've tried to maybe assimilate a little too much maybe sometimes. We've lost that connection to the old ways a little bit. How we're seeing how... The U.S. has changed in its views on morality and ethics and what is right and wrong and good and evil over the last decade. I mean, you're old enough. You'll you'll see the country's really changed in the last 10 years Mm -hmm. drastically. Those are having influences on our youth. And our kids sometimes no longer know what's right and wrong. It's... The, the line is blurring. Yeah. And I think that's that's what's really worrying me. Especially, you know, I have three daughters. So that's what that's what worries me. I mean, thank God they're good kids. Yeah. So far. You know, thank God. Uh but you know, that's what's that's what's alarming that mm-hmm. wow, country's really changed. You know, things that were you know, we're a minority now, Christians. Yeah. Christianity is a minority in America. You know, we keep saying it's built on Judeo-Christians. Most of these people don't know Judeo-Christian. And we're a minority. So things that we see are wrong. Yeah, and it could be because Nana Sota told us they were wrong. But Nana Sota told us they were wrong because that's what Scripture has taught us. You know, she may not have been a theologian to open up the Bible and read it in Aramaic or Greek or Latin. But she knew what was God's commands. We're losing that. And that's what worries me about our our youth. That we need to really instill into them the old faith. They need to understand the passions. Why they sin. How they sin. How the devil works. The impact of sin. The impact of sin. I don't... I think it's... You know, we've become... The country just as a whole has become very numb to sin. It's just... Oh, okay. It's common. It's expected. And I see it like whether you're at weddings or events or this or that, you know, even at work, 
You know, I see it's, you know, the way people talk and act and do things and say, we couldn't get away with that 20-something years ago. We knew that Chapola was coming. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, but now, and now I, I say that, but I see something that the youth is, is, is now more strongly bonded. You know, they're not, well, I go to this parish and this is my parish. And and I and I never really experienced that either because all we had was mud a day, yeah. So you know, uh, but I, I'm seeing that there isn't that. Well, this is my parish and this is where I go, you know. And I'm sure some of that maybe still exists. It's you know, it's pride. Everybody's proud of their parish, and that's okay. Be proud of your parish. But I think they're really bonded because you know I see like my girls. You know, they have really close friends at mud day, really close friends at mud day, really close friends at mud and they all fit in well with each other. Yeah. So I'm seeing that 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 will help them because they're they are a community right now. You know, I am in a separate community at my age mm-hmm. and who I deal with and who I sit with and eat with and talk with and socialize with. They're developing their own community. Network, yeah. Their own network, you know, and as long as it could be within the church That'll really help them for the future. Mm-hmm. Not only in terms of their spirituality, their Christianity, their faith, knowing what's right and wrong. They're going to make mistakes. Kids make, I still make mistakes. Find me someone that doesn't make mistakes. Yeah, there is. There's, his name is Jesus. Yeah. They'll make mistakes, but they'll be making it in a community where they'll have that support to help them. Mm-hmm. That's very important because society won't give that support right now because... Like Isaiah says, good is bad, bad is good. So things have kind of flipped right now. These are my worries about youth, but I'm thinking the way that they're going right now, they'll be fine. Because, see, there's this generation between my generation and my kids. There's this mini generation. That's me. That's my generation. Yeah, it's your generation. Okay, right? But there's some, some people that if they're 18 to 20 years younger than me, give or take, I can kind of be their dad. Yeah. Like if I started really early, you know. <laughs> but there's this mini generation group where they have they've lost focus of the church. They've lost focus of who they are as Assyrians. They've lost focus are of who they are in their community. They've lost focus of how they can contribute to society, how they can be an active part of community. You know, and I'm seeing this next generation that's coming up, this younger one, they're now learning all these things. You know, their first and foremost communities within the church because it's their faith community. It's their family outside of family. I mean, think about it. Anything that happens in our life, the priest is the first person we call. Mm-hmm. Well, think about it. You know, someone wants to get married, we're calling a priest, baptism, priest. And someone passes away, who do you call? You call a priest. Well, you call the funeral home and then you call a priest. But I mean, it, there, there's such a primary role. The church is such a primary role in the believer's life that I'm seeing it now with them that it's funny, like my, my kids and a lot of them, they plan their weeks around Sundays and Fridays. Sundays, got to go to church. Friday, you have to go to youth. And everybody tell, oh, you know, we have to go to youth. Well, they go to youth because if they don't, they're, they're going to take attendance. They don't get to go to conference. I, I, I don't know about that. I mean, conference is nice and they have fun. I don't believe they're going to youth just for conference. Mm-hmm. 
uh, you know. Yeah, there's there's a lot of aspects. To there's it. a lot That's of social, aspects yeah. because you know these kids that are going to to youth on Friday, they're going to church on Sunday, mm-hmm. so they want to be active in the church life and they want to be part of the church life. And I'm seeing it with this group the way the youth is now. They're so bound to each other, just in their social life. That's something I think was missing in that mini generation. I, I could be wrong. It's funny how you naturally transition to the next question in oh. sequential order. But what wisdom do you have to impart as a parent who has three beautiful girls? Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, honestly, it's and, and this isn't cliche. Take them to church. Ra- raise them in the church. There's Everything else is superficial and meaningless, to be honest with you. Good parents sometimes have bad children, right? It happens for whatever reason. I'm not saying I'm a good parent. I'm just, I'm generalizing. Mm-hmm. Good parents sometimes have bad children. And, you know, sometimes good parents do everything for their kids and the kids just doesn't work out. And it could be that the way the parents parented was maybe not the best for that child, whatever the reason is, you know, but I could tell you, if you don't take your kids and raise them in the church, they will not be good kids, period. You know, and then when, when parents wonder what went wrong, well, you know, I, I work five days a week, Monday through Friday, really long hours. My job is physical. I mean, people think you're a pharmacist. No, ph- being a pharmacist is kind of a physical job now. You know, we're on our feet, we're moving, shots, tests, this, that, all day. You know, and it's mentally draining. You know, and then on weekends, I'm, you know, my other vocation, the priesthood. It's not a, it's not a weekend gig, but, you know, if I'm having to cover or counseling or this or that. Yeah, everybody wants to stay home. Everybody wants to sleep in. Everybody wants to do nothing. Everybody wants to go travel. Hey, I'm human too, Peter. Yeah, I want to do it as well. But there's just certain thing. Once you have children, you've been endowed with a blessing from God. Now it's up to you what you do with this blessing. And I think raise them up in the church. As tiring as it is for you, as mascadenta is going to be for you, as draining it's going to be for you, you have to do it because when they grow up in the church and you see them in youth, you see them active in the church, whether they're in the choir, they're playing music for choir, whatnot. The fact that they're in church on Sundays should yeah. be enough to say, thank you, God. I mean, that, that should be enough that your child is waking. Maybe they're getting there late, but they're still get, they know they need to get there. And not because, you know, you're going to smack them. Or, you know, the Dr. Scholl's Chikelta that we all experienced growing up <laughs> is going to turn the corner and hit you in the back of the head. Not because of that, because they know it's the right thing to do for their salvation. You know, that that's take them, raise them in the church. Make time for them to read scripture with them, discuss with them, talk with them. And, you know, I don't want it to sound like, oh, well, he's a priest. He's saying this because he's a priest. Okay, well, but you still you still have to have a relationship with your kids. You have to have a relationship with your children. That's kind of one of the things we missed with our dad being a priest in a way, we were the only priest kids, and I was the youngest by 11 years. Mm-hmm. You know, no one really kind of knew where I was coming from. No one understood what it was like. 
yeah, everybody had the stern parents. Everybody had this. Yeah, we all had that. But they didn't experience that. I mean, I didn't have the normal quote-unquote relationship, but I had a different relationship, yeah. which worked out great. I mean, it was a blessing. But it's it's a different time now. It's a different era. You know, we can't parent our kids the way my parents parented me 40 years ago. It just it just doesn't work. It It doesn't work. You know, now I'm not saying we give up on the values and our faith and what we've learned from scripture and the church and and how to raise good Christian children. I'm not saying give up on that, but you know, the parenting might need to change a little bit, but there there has to be a relationship with your because if you don't have a relationship with your child, someone else is gonna have a relationship with yeah. that child. And they're gonna teach them everything bad. I think it's concept a lot that the the internet is gonna parent your child. Yeah. Yeah, if you don't. I, well, I mean, the internet, you want to look something up, boom, you just go to the internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one thinks about, let me get a book and let me let me research it. You know, okay, we use the internet to research, I get it. But, you know, we want, we're in, a, we're in a society and a time where we want the answer yesterday. And we want everything now at the tip of our fingertips. Everything has to be there at the tip of our fingertips. Parenting is not like that. It is, parenting is like Christianity. It is a marathon. It is not a sprint. You just have to find a pace and go. And then you're going to fall. You're going to go backwards. And you're going to go sideways. And you're going to want to quit the race sometimes. You, it's just a marathon. you got to keep going with it. But the best way to build a relationship. With, and I see it a lot now. And I see it with, with these young parents. You know, they're taking their kids to Monday ministry. You know, and really, what's a three-year-old, four-year-old going to know? It doesn't matter. Take them. Let them go. Let them experience even if you teach them baba kucha, baba kucha, that their learnings, the brain will absorb. It's a sponge. And being in that environment of church, you know, they're taking them. They're taking them to the fall festivals or they don't call them Halloween parties. Now. Yeah. They call them all Hallow's Eve. All, all, all saints, yeah. And that's fine. But but all these things to keep them involved, grow them in the church. So see, when, when I was growing up, we had friends that were non-Assyrians. We had quite a bit of friends that were non-Assyrians. And they were okay, but we always knew who our friends really were. And it was always that Assyrian group. We were here in Turlock, and the rest of the Assyrian that were members of Maradi lived in Modesto. But the majority of kids our age growing up that were here in Turlock, not all of them were from Maradi, not all of them were from the Church of the East. But there wasn't a lot of us, so we were that group. Whereas in Modesto, even though they are all members of Day, there was a lot of youth and a lot of kids there, you know, that were all Church of the East. Yeah. We were like a few of us. Like I could probably count 10 of them and that was about it. Uh-huh. You know, and Maradi has always traditionally been like an older parish, you know. I mean, it's changed drastically over the years now. Um, but that's, we were tight-knit, but all of us were involved in our churches, all of us were involved in our church programs. Each person had their own church. They were active because the parents were active. And I think that really, that helped. It, it, it connected us. You know, so if you want a parent, raise your child in the church. And I know, you, you get tired. Sometimes you don't want to go to church. I get it. I, I, I Trust me, I know. <laughs> you know, it's it's... But, you know, read the Bible with them. 
be a parent with them. I, I don't I don't I don't agree with be a friend with them. You got to be a parent to your child. Mm-hmm. But it's how are you going to parent them? You know, you can't tell your kids do this stuff and you don't do it. You know, it's it's like the person that smokes and tells his kids don't smoke, it's not healthy, but he's smoking a pack a day in the in the house. I mean, you can't do that. You know? It's funny because one one of my podcast guests actually mentioned that same story. The and smoker. He, his recollection, his first memory was his dad telling him but he sees his dad smoking having a blast with his buddy you know what is this guy telling me but see you know but you know and 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 it's not being hypocritical you know they say that because i think they know i mean it's bad and they don't want anything bad to what what parent wants something bad to happen to their child you know but this is the life they've chosen now and you get to a point it's hard to change Mm -hmm. change is very difficult yeah we're talking about that earlier right it's very difficult and i'm one i i do not like change I am very like stuck in the mud. Don't change. It's working. Don't change it. I don't care if it's better. This works fine. <laughs> I, I think that would be my the, the wisdom. I don't know if I have any wisdom, but just raising kids in 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 this society. It, yeah, raise them in the church. Take them to church events. Read scripture with them. And I'm gonna be honest. We're we're not we're not that great at it either. We try. I mean, but I know my kids, they read scripture at night in their rooms. Mm-hmm. They read the Bible. We used to read it with them. And just, I'm a dad and human, just like everybody else. You know, we we, we fall out, we fall sometimes. And what are you going to do? Little is known about the wife of a priest <laughs> that is involved in the background. Can you draw the curtain and reveal some details of how involved your wife is in the community and her work that has supported youth activities? Oh, that's like three questions in one (laughs) sometimes little is known of a priest's wife and that i think depends on the priest and his wife the environment they're in the social grouping that they're in what level of involvement they feel is appropriate for her i don't mean that negatively Mm. i just you know so it's funny because in Arabic, a priest is an al-khuri. Khuri means priest. And then the wife of the priest is a khuriya, a shishta. Mm. Not priestess, but, yeah. you know, wife of a priest. And even in, in, in the Greek Orthodox Church, a priest is a presbyter. And the, the wife is a presbytera. There is an anticipated and accepted role that the, the wife of the priest has. And I think that's a beautiful thing because... Someone that you can't go into the priesthood without the support of the family unit. I think it would be a very difficult priesthood, be very hard. It would be emotionally draining to you because think about it. Priests deal with many different characters on many different levels and you need your sanctum sanctorum at home. And you need someone that can be your emotional rock to stabilize you. If that relationship doesn't exist, you'd have to be a really, really strong priest Mm -hmm. to be able to handle that and and not depend on someone. And whether it's advice or just comfort or just, you know, people sometimes want to vent. I, I mean, I hear it at work all the time. From, from employees 
And and I never think of myself as like a Dr. Phil. Like I'm like thinking I'm the last person you want to come vent to. Yeah, and you really chose me out of everybody here, but okay. But to have a healthy priesthood and have a healthy marriage and a healthy relationship in priesthood, the wife has to somehow be active in something. And I don't mean that has to like, oh, well, we have to make her this because she's the I don't mean it that way. There there has it's it's the family is entering into the priesthood. There has to be something that they're being able to serve. You know, my wife cannot go, you know, this Sunday I'm going to be covering at Marzayan Parish. My wife cannot go Sunday and fulfill the liturgy and celebrate it. That's not her role. Mm-hmm. But there are other roles. I mean, when I was a deacon, my wife was very involved in Friday school at Maraday. Um, and by default, youth, I guess, since kind of the Friday school was a funnel to youth. Everything happens on Friday night, and then you see the twelve-year-olds are looking at the fourteen-year-olds, fifteens, and there they're going to youth, and they're still stuck here. Yeah. So it's kind of like something they knew, like, oh, this is where I'm going to get to, mm-hmm. you know. So she had been involved with it for for years in that aspect. In terms of uh, initially, it was just kind of helping in the younger kids' classes because you know our daughters were really young. You know, and every mom when their daughters are really young wants to help, but they don't have that much time to. So that I guess the best segue is they kind of start helping in the class that their kids are in. And then kind of as the kids get older, they can take more responsibility if they're willing to do it. So, you know, she was involved with that. And then it was Sunday school, helping with Sunday school. And then she was teaching for Friday school. And then for a few years, she was administering it. And then, you know, you get, and and she works, she teaches at the pharmacy school there, so at UOP. So, you know, things happen in life that kind of pull you in different directions. So you have to be, you know, rolling with the waves. And sometimes you have to lessen sometimes your involvement in one thing to be able to fulfill your duties at your job. But the last uh, few years, she's, um, last several years, she's been, I don't want to say running because it makes it sound like that she's been organizing, I guess. Okay. The dance group that the church has, it's a phenomenal dance group. And it's, you know, someone had, it kind of fell into her lap and she started doing it. She really wanted to change things up for one of our festivals and said, I want to start teaching them traditional dances. And all I could think of was Shabe, you know, the Shabe, the dancer, Shabe yeah, with, with the, the mustache. Yeah. And I'm like thinking, and I'm <laughs> seeing, swords yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing him and I'm looking at these kids and I'm like, I don't think this is going to happen, but okay, <laughs> babe, you got my support, whatever you need, but <laughs> I, I highly doubt they're going to grow a mustache yeah. like him. I mean, this is what I'm thinking. Right, this is right, how right. I'm imagining it. But you know, the, the funny thing is, the funny thing is, and, and, Props to her and the dance group and all the moms that have helped. So it's an equal across the board. But it's the dancers. They're just phenomenal. They're awesome. And it was funny that I think but not an uh, organization was having one of their food festivals a few years ago. And Shabba was going to come. And he told them, I'll come if this great dance group dances with me. Wow. And I was like, okay, that's, I was like, all right, this is kind of legitimate, you know, and, and, you know, but there, there are traditional dances. So I, I think it's a, a priest's wife has roles 
that she can fulfill and to serve. And I think that's healthy because it it binds them together, the priest and his wife. Yeah. Each is serving the church and they're serving Christ in the in a role that's respective for their rank and what they are, you know, quote unquote allowed to do, for lack of a better term. I remember for example, my mom was never in Mutwa, not, nothing like that, but she was always in Sita de Marate. This is what they did. Like the ladies auxiliary. The ladies yeah. auxiliary. Yeah. I mean, this was her role. Like she, you know, they cooked, you know, for Dukhranane, breakfast, you know, feast days of a saint or martyr, you know, funerals, luncheons. I mean, I, this was when they baked kade or keleche and all the desserts and sweets and pastries. This was her way of serving. You know, and I think each each generation and each priest or wife can decide how she wants to serve if she wants to serve. Yeah. But I think it's something very healthy. I think it's something very natural because you don't walk in one day and tell your wife, hey, honey, Sunday I'm becoming a priest. It, it doesn't work like that. You know, the, the, the family has to think about it and pray about it and discuss it. And, well, it will change the life. Some things will change. Some things don't. Some things in my life that I thought would change in the family have not changed at all. And certain things happen. You're like, yeah, you know, okay. What are the best and worst parts of your job as a priest or your vocation as a priest? The best parts really are serving. I, I enjoy serving. And I think... You know, my, my favorite gospel readings have always been from Mark because it always shows Christ as the servant Messiah. You know, the moment you start reading the gospel of Mark, Christ is serving. Yeah, he's performing miracles. He's doing all these miraculous, amazing things. But he's serving and he's serving the people. He's bringing them closer to God. And it really, to me, sums up Christ's mission. He was serving humanity to bring them to divinity. And the the best part of being a priest is serving. I enjoy serving. I enjoy serving with my brother deacons. I enjoy serving with my brother priests. You know, like my wife always laughs at me. Like, I love funerals. You know, you serve at a funeral. It's always so solemn. Everybody's quiet, you know, and, and they're really paying attention mm -hmm. you know i know it sounds real odd but it's a time where everybody's just real solemn and quiet and they're paying attention to the service they're they're really into the service and you know church to the east funerals we have our hymns and we have our readings from the psalms and and they're very for someone that's never experienced it they're, they're very eye-opening you know if you come from an american funeral service you know, they just sit at the gravesite for about 20 minutes, say a few words, read a scripture passage, and then that's it. You know, you come to a church of the East Funeral, it's very ancient, it's very old, and it's very dramatic. You know, and then... It's a range of emotions. It's a range of emotions, you know, and then you get to the sermon, and the priest, or the bishop, you know, whoever is is celebrating, performing the, the service, uh, is there... To now tell these people, basically stop crying, stop being sad, 
like St. Paul says, stop being like the pagans without hope. This is a good thing. This is actually what we aspire to be at. That one day this death will take us to paradise. Because which is our avenue then to the kingdom of heaven. You you go from, you know, everybody's sad and they're bichya. And then, you know, you say the madrashe, those lamentations. And they start crying. And then you get to the sermon that's inspiring and, and it's full of hope. And what it should be. This is what a funeral is about. And, and you know, they're explaining how, well, all these prayers were asking for the forgiveness of the sins of the deceased. We want mercy upon his or her soul. This is what we want. And then you go from that to our Pushba Shlama, where we take the, you know, the, the deceased out of the, the church or the chapel, you know, and then that's the, the dip in the emotions because it's another realization like they're leaving, mm-hmm. you know. So I enjoy the funerals, not in a morbid sense. Yeah. I, I enjoy it because it's a very complete service and the people are very into it it's very solemn you know we've all gone to you know matrimonial services a wedding of buracha i mean and some people are talking and you know and you really want them to hear the words that the priest is saying because it's the whole theology of what the marriage ceremony is and what it means to us as christians and how Christ has instituted it through the church. But I think they miss a lot of that. Whereas the funeral, they don't, mm-hmm. really. So, but I know people are going to think this guy's real weird now. He loves funerals. Yeah. It, it, it's not that I, the church of the East has such a treasury to offer its people through its services. And when they can hear it and understand it whether it's in the old language modern syriac whether it's in english if they could if they read it and see it and understand it it's it's amazing the theological significance it has and what effect it has on humanity and what christ has done for humanity Mm -hmm. you know to think of us that St. Isaac of Nineveh says, when you enter the church, think of yourself as a small ant coming into church. And you think, okay, we're a small ant, and the Creator, God, became man to save this little ant from eternal damnation. And you see it play out in these services. Now, whether it's the funeral, whether it's the the marriage liturgy, the you know the matrimony. Whether it's the divine liturgy, Raza, Qurbana, the Eucharist, you, you see it play out in these services. So, you know, if the people can hear it and understand it and read it, I think it's it would just knock them out. Mm-hmm. It's so amazing. And that's, I think that's why I love serving. That's one of the best things is serving because you get to serve this. Yeah. You know, and, and, and through all the feebleness and the meekness and sinfulness that we are as priests, we're able to be that vessel to enact this for humanity's salvation. Can there be a greater blessing than that? I guess I guess getting to heaven would be yeah. the ultimate. But I, I don't know if there's anything bigger, greater, more nobler than that. Mm-hmm. You know, so serving. 
would be it. Now, whether it's that or teaching, you know, like I have Saturday, I have baptismal counseling and I enjoy it. And I enjoy that teaching aspect because you're serving, but then, you know, I'm learning. Yeah. You know, because sometimes you get some way out questions <laughs> and you're like, oh, I better not answer. Let me, I'll get back to you, <laughs> you know, and, and that's okay because people have questions. Yeah, we don't have all the answers. We, we don't have, have all the answers, answers, you know, and, and. But it also, it's part of serving and teaching and you're learning as well. I want to give you an opportunity to talk about what you enjoy. What are your hobbies? Because I know we've spoken a lot about your vocation yeah. as a priest and your career as a pharmacist. Nothing. Priests should have no hobbies. <laughs> they should be in church and reading all day. Um, so, um, I mean, I don't collect stamps. or anything. I probably should have. But, uh, I don't play video games. I don't really watch a lot of TV either. I, I enjoy reading. I really, really enjoy reading. And I try to keep myself um, busy with that just to really sound smarter than everybody else. No, I'm kidding. I, I really enjoy reading. And, and I've, I'm, I'm, I'm right now reading a series of books. He's this patristic scholar of the Orthodox Church. His name is Jean-Claude Larcher. So he's from Quebec, Canada. But he's like the world's eminent scholar on the fathers of the church from like the third, fourth century through the 14th, 15th century. And his focus is on spiritual illness, how sin is a disease and how it affects mankind. <clears throat> and he's really, and I'm really just, I'm enraptured by, he's talking about all this, the, the vices you know, the passions, the gluttony, the addictions, yeah. gluttony, lust, vainglory, pride, you know, and I'm reading them and, I, and it just, and I'm like, oh no, that's me. <laughs> you know, you're able to find yourself in every one of these yeah. passions, which is kind of scary when you really think about it. Because, you know, we're, you know, we're Christians and we tend to think, okay, we're decent people. And I think we are decent people. Mm -hmm. But when you really read this and how he's coming at it from the angle of scripture and the writings of the church fathers... You begin to think you're like, wow, you know, I'm really lax in my Christianity and how easily we fall into these passions. So that's kind of been my thing right now, reading on this. And I'm trying to integrate some of that into my sermons, if possible, or my teachings, if possible. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to just hammer somebody about pride out of the blue and the gospels about something totally right, different, right. you know. But I, I enjoy reading. Um, I enjoy jogging. I should be doing it more. My kids tell me because they like that. Got to do some jogging. But I enjoy jogging. I have a dog. I've had a dog for almost six years now. He's a Siberian Husky. Well, that's, that's, I mean, you know, that's a Syrians to have a pet. Yeah. I mean, we were that's, growing up, we had cats. That's all we had, you know. And they were always like. It's a trend now. Yeah, it's a trend, you know. So about, you know, <laughs> about six years ago, my kids kept asking for a dog. And I was like, man, should I get a dog? Yeah, it's not going to happen. My wife said you could buy an outdoor cat. And I was like thinking, outdoor cat? Why would I buy it? I just get a cat, put some food, and I'll have yeah. a cat. So she went away for a trip. She came back. Lo and behold, we had Duke, a Siberian Husky. That was two months. He just <laughs> appeared out of nowhere. So he's a real sweet dog. So I like taking him out on walks. I like jogging. I like reading music. I listen to music. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, when I walked into your house, it was uh, like Grover Washington. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm really into this kind of smooth jazz. You know, that actually was it was Sam Levine. Okay. okay. Yeah. So check him out. He's yeah. he's real cool, Sam Levine. Um, I am a child of the '80s. 
So I have very, you know, I'm kind of, I like 80s music okay. and things like that. But I like, you know, this nice lounge jazz. But yeah, really to, to uh, you know, I used to watch football a lot, the NFL. But the last couple of years, I really haven't. So mm-hmm. I'm pretty boring guy, I guess. Who's your favorite theologian? And I don't know if you can actually pinpoint one. Oh. Uh, but favorite theologian, favorite hymn, and why? Shemesha Peter Ezu will laugh at this. He's one of our deacons in Chicago. Because my favorite theologian would be St. Theodore the Interpreter, Maru Theodorus. I like to proudly say I'm a Theodorian. St. Theodore, Maru Theodorus, was Greek by nature. He was Greek, Oslo, I mean, he was a Greek. They even say his knowledge of Aramaic wasn't, or Syriac, wasn't superb. You know, I look at the, the faith of the Church of the East, it's orthodoxy, it's theology, it's Christology, how it looks on who Christ is, what Christ is, who God is, what God is, who Mary is, what is Mary in the relationship in, in this. And St. Theodore, it's just perfect. His theology is just perfect of how he explains who God is and the relationship of the Trinity and how that second person, you know, we say Qunuma, but you know, second person of the Trinity became man for our salvation. And who is this Christ? Mm-hmm. Is he just man? Is he just God? Is he half God and half man? Oh, well, that would be Hercules then. Who is he? What is he? And the theology, he's my favorite theologian, not because the Church of the East learned from him, but he uses some terminology that he could have only heard of somehow or been exposed to that's not naturally Greek. This terminology that he uses to describe the incarnation of the unification of the godhood and the manhood, uh, these two natures, the two the two individualities of divinity and, and, and humanity into one person, Christ. Some of the terminology he uses... It's not common Greek terminology. Yeah. And even the ideas he's expressing, they're Eastern ideas. Mm. And I don't know if he's been exposed to Church of the East thing. I mean, St. Theodore was around in 300, late 2nd century, early 3rd century. He died in 427, 428 AD. You know, so he uses this term, but it's just a perfect and from it you know the church they took that theology not i mean it, it, they recognized it and they said this is our theology you know his teacher was mordiadoros and then there's mordiadoros and his student was marnastoros but then eventually it gets down to manarse malpana who's one of the preeminent theologians of the church of the east and really by then he's really kind of fortified the church of the east theology and the Christology on Christ, the unification. And I don't want to use separation, but lack of a better term, separation of the qualities of what the divinity does, what the humanity does. But they're not two, they're in one Christ. There's mm-hmm. there's no confusion between in this union. So each essence or each entity maintains its characteristics of divinity or humanity. And even prior to, you know, Marnesi, there was Mar- Marbawe Rabba, who really, in his hymns, started really 
formulating and structuring Church of the East theology. So then by the time of Manarsia Malpana, and he was very staunch, Church of the East, and you know, a lot of it he was in a milieu where he was encountering Miaphysite, Monophysite theology coming in, Miaphysite, Monophysite bishops were entering into area that was usually known as Church of the East area. So there was these debates and quote-unquote battles, mm -hmm. you know, of theology. So he really was pushing it further out, the Church of the East yeah, theology, yeah. what it was. So then by the time you had Mar Odishu and Sibon Armenia, it was, the theology was pretty set. I mean, it was set theology. But I think it all... You know, the church calls Martiadoros the interpreter. If someone wanted to learn more, what what references or where can they refer to his... <laughs> I have a lot right here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I my master's thesis was on the patristic exegetical tradition of the Church of the East and how really it's a culmination and fulfillment and just a tracking of the Antiochian school. You know, back then there were two schools of theology. There was Antioch, Antioch in Syria, and Alexandria in Egypt. Alexandria was more allegorical. They really focused on the divinity of Christ. Um, they were more prone to like these flights of fancy. You know, it was more like the unseen things, mm. kind of philosophical. Whereas Antioch was more empirical, and they really focused more on the humanity of Christ. And and I'm not saying one is more right than the other. It's just that with the allegorical take of Alexandria, they tended to lose out on the humanity. Where the Antiochian school, who was Diodor, Theodore, Nestorius, and then the ones before them, it was more if the humanity isn't a real humanity then we don't have a real salvation mm -hmm. christ had to have had a real human humanity mind soul body rational thinking everything except sin obviously yeah, yeah. then it's not if that's not the case it's not a real humanity then do we really have salvation did he real take did he really take everything we had to save us if not is our salvation real so I was analyzing St. Theodore and mm. his writings, especially on John 1, 14. And, you know, the word became flesh. And then also researching St. Nerese, Mar Nerese, and then Mar Odishu. So these were the three. Okay. And this was your master's in theology. This is a master's okay. in theology. So, but St. Theodore, I, I, there's, I, I would try to first initially get, find St. Theodore's commentaries and then find his commentaries on John 1.14 and start from there. Mm. Because you can always, I mean, any decent website, you can find yeah. who St. Theodore was, what it is. But, you know, you have to be careful. I mean, some people still consider him a heretic because he was condemned in 553 in the Second Council of Constantinople after he had been dead 125 years. And it was all politically motivated. And I talk about that in my thesis. So. Anyways, I, I, St. Theodore, St. Theodore, okay. like, like Shemesh Peter Azu says, you're, you're a Theodorian. I go, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we answered the second part of the question, though. Okay. Favored him. Oh, favored him. Yeah. Yes. Favored him. 
My favorite hymn is right before the fractioning, when the priest raises up the body of Christ, and then he begins to fraction it. Mm-hmm. And then he's uniting it with the chalice, the blood. So we sing that hymn, Bashrara. Bashrara marla shawinan Khunin marikadla shawinan Daw yadkhalla shudhan mutlatayn sakiyah Because that the prayers that the priest will say before, it always really kind of makes me realize how insignificant we are as humans. See here, basically the priest says, Bless, O my Lord, bless, O my Lord, bless, O my Lord. We are approaching, Lord God, by your compassion, by your mercy of your grace, these glorious holy, life-giving, and godly or divine raze, mysteries, while we are not worthy, while we are not worthy. And then, صدر زيال شويخ وقديش ومخيان ولا كذنا شوينان بسرارا the شمشانة the deacons which is now the deacons and the populace will say بشرارا which means verily like in truth we are not worthy because we have many sins and because of our frailty and because that our sins are are, are a lot there are many we are not worthy basically to approach the body and blood of Christ that always kicks it to me how insignificant we are mm. as humans and we we, we may be the um, top of the food chain and we might be the species that's destroying the planet now but in god's eyes we're very very insignificant but we're so much more significant than even the angels because he sent his son to save us insignificant humans so it's that's the kind of perspective i have on it so i i, I you know and it, it's a little depressing to me to be honest with you because after that when i walk out of raza i feel down sometimes mm. like wow we're real failures yeah i don't mean to be a debbie down no, 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 no. but it just it's that it's that emotion that you know wow really like he's done all this for us and you know we're just humans yeah yeah so kind of along the same lines aside from christmas and easter yeah and i'm making an assumption here that they're probably your favorite holidays to celebrate what is your favorite feast to celebrate my favorite feast you know it's it's hard because all our saints and martyrs they all approach the same let's talk about the martyrs they all approach the same ending but it was the way they approached it 
was 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 specific for each one. You know, we had some that apostatized and came back. Some were real wealthy and they gave up everything. You know, and Mudagiwaragis is the common yeah, everybody loves Mudagiwaragis because everybody loves Mudagiwaragis, which I love Mudagiwaragis as well. But you know, growing up in Marade, you know, Maradukhrana the Marade, and Marade was never uh, a martyr, but obviously he was one of the uh, founders of the Church of the East. Um, Marade was always one of my favorites. Marastapanos, you know, especially as a deacon, I really, I always thought Marastapanos, he was, I always saw him as a young, young kid mm-hmm. or young, you know, a, a teenage, teenager, man, young adult. And like I always imagine him knowing he's gonna be stoned or he's gonna be killed, and he spoke about Christ, just said it. And I think, man, I don't know, would we be able to do that as Shamash in this world? Like, if it really came to it, could we really witness and confess Christ like Marastapanos? But um, the last few years, though, Peter, honestly, it's such a changed. I, I, I. I Marchmuni Ubnuno, Saint it's really Saint Simone or Shmuni and her sons. That is kind of it's really attracted my attention in the last several years, you know. Um Saint Shmuni, um uh, we, they, we have a in Surya, one of our villages there, Halmun and Halamnay, that's their patron saint. Yeah. So and the church celebrates her feast, I I if I'm not mistaken, I in August, if I'm not mistaken. Anyways, this Mata, they usually celebrate it in May. And I was asked a few years ago to celebrate the liturgy for the feast. And, you know, the whole the whole Mata, the whole village comes. And, you know, they bring food, you know, and then we did Raza Maradeh. And, and it's not just the Mata, but other Matwata come, you know. Yeah. It's, it's a feast day of St. Shmuni. You know, I started thinking to myself, okay, what what... I mean, what should I preach on? I mean, you know, I could obviously the gospel, but you know, it's her feast day. We we should talk about her. Why is she important? Because the interesting is Saint Shmuni and her sons was during the reigns of Antiochus Epiphanes. So this was 100, 200 years before Christ. This is after Alexander the Great had died, and then he basically bequeathed his empire to his generals. Mm. And Antiochus and Seleucus, they were these generals. That were Seleucus was in Babylon and Antiochus was in Syria, and, and this is the same Antiochus Epiphanes that um, that he defiled the temple in Jerusalem. That's why there's Hanukkah. So when he did, when he sacrificed a pig mm-hmm. on the temple altar in the holy temple, and he erected statues of Zeus and of himself in the temple, and that's when the Maccabees then revolted. And then the story of Hanukkah comes along. Anyways, so she wasn't a Christian, but she was a God fearing woman who believed in the God, and what always. You know, I, I read the story and I looked it up and I looked in some articles and some references and what we have in our Khudra, the, the, the religious cycle book, and, and it basically tells her whole story, but in him. Is, and it was just shocking to me and amazing that not only did their teacher, the seven sons' teacher, not only was he martyred for God, but so were her sons, one after the other. I mean, people tend to think it was like, oh, they were all just killed that one time. No. Each one went through horrific tortures and torments and, mm. you know, having their skin peeled off their bodies alive, being cooked alive and boiling oil, 
parts of their bodies cut off member by member. You know, till it got to the seventh son, you would think the seventh son would have been like, okay, no, 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 no. Dumb, yeah. Yeah. I'll eat some pig. We'll call it a day, you know? And the fact that the mother was still urging them on to die for God than to defile him. That was just, to me, was shocking. Because in this, I don't know, could we do that as parents in this age? I mean, do we have enough faith to do that as parents? You know, and reading how she was encouraging her sons to accept a crown of martyrdom for the only true God. I mean, it was really bringing tears to my eyes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't know if I could do this as a parent. Like, Mm -hmm. really, if it came down to it, like, I might be able to me say, okay, my life for theirs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe. Maybe. I'm telling you, maybe, Peter. Could I really expect this of them? But isn't this what's expected of all of us as Christians? Mm-hmm. Like, that. so it's, I don't want to say it's become my favorite, but it's just really has, it just makes me really think. To the point I don't want to think about it sometimes, because yeah, like, yeah. it's like, out of loud, I don't, I don't want to be in the, that situation, mm-hmm. you know. What are your favorite Assyrian books and non-Assyrian books, both religious and or secular? Okay, let's go non-religious. That's going to make it easier. Um, so non-religious, uh, I, I'm a big history buff. So I like um, I like anything that has to do with history. And I'm a big fan of the classical period of Greek, Greece. I don't know why. Like I think I was born in the wrong time wrong era yeah you know so anything that has to do with history you know any 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 books that i can find that are historical even if they're written with the historical slant and they're just a novel about julius caesar i'm really interested in so that's kind of that um i love clive Cussler. he's almost like an indiana jones but not goofy yeah Right, he Clive Cluster is the author, so but he takes events that have actually happened historically in the history of the world, and will build a story mm. from that. You know, one one of them was I think it was the Odyssey. Was it the Odyssey? Yeah, it's the Odyssey. Basically, he put in a lot of evidence, and he'll use real like research that's out there, and and he put in some evidence that. Troy really isn't in Turkey, the city of Troy, that it was somewhere located in Britain. Wow. Yeah. So you're like, no, that can't be. And then you're reading it, and then you look up the references, and you're like, wow, these are kind of crazy stories. So those are, and then like I said, I got my little religious section that I kind of go through in terms of, oh, what's great here I like is this. Vladimir Lossky is great. Where is he? Um, There he is. Lossky is great. More about theology. The likeness of God. Yeah. The dogmatic theology. The dogmatic, yeah. So, you know, I'm really, that, that really fascinates me. Mm. You know, I try to read up as much on St. Isaac of Nineveh as I can. You know, St. Isaac really was like a bishop for five months and then he quit. He goes, I, I, I'm dealing with couples complaining about marriage issues. And he retired and became a hermit. Yeah. And then he started writing all his ascetical homilies. You know, and, and I read him and I think, wow. He's also referred to as Isaac the Syrian. Isaac the Syrian, yeah, yeah, yeah. And really, he's not a Syrian or Syrian. He was Arabaya. He was, I think, Yemeni. 
Mm. And then he was assigned to the 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 Sea of Ninue in that area. Yeah. S E E C. So and he's just like after five, six months and said, This is not the life for me. And he became a hermit and and it's an impossibility. No, I don't think people can become like Saint Isaac of Ninue, you know. In this day and age. This yeah. I, I and I really truly believe there are probably in this world maybe four or five holy people like really holy people like these are the people that you look at them and you can't look at them because mm-hmm. the angelic glow is like it's that you can't look at them yeah I, I and I don't think they they, they 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 live in the world like they're in the mountains mm-hmm. they've retired places and they're in such communion with God that um that they're taking they're they're being deified you know while still on earth they're 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 experiencing that that divine light they're experiencing that part of divinity that saint peter talks about in his second epistle that you know it's it's the deification process it's our that is our goal to become deified we can't become god because that would require change in essence which is impossible yeah but it's that deification of our nature to reach immortality. And I think these are people that are that are there already. And I, maybe there's like four or five of them, I think. Maybe less. Achik Archekima is one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I tend to like authors that really tell me how much of a failure and useless I am. <laughs> It grounds you, I guess. It's so you know. I I I'm a I'm a I'm a realist. Yeah. I'm not an, I'm not negative. I'm a realist. So when someone tells me something, I immediately think, but what happens if this this this? Well, why are you so negative? No, I'm not negative. I, I I'm thinking this is a great plan, but I don't think we're gonna be able to build an airplane in our backyard. Yeah. I like being grounded, mm-hmm. because I think I have an ego, and I think I could be a little arrogant. <laughs> No, and I say that I mean we're laughing and yeah, but I and, and I mean you're admitting it on air, so <laughs> no, but I think but I think um, I think we all do, mm-hmm. in a sense. It's just the passions that we have. You know, we're all vainglorious. You know, I think all of us we want to. We're even proud in the good virtues that we have. Right. Which makes us vainglorious, which defeats the virtues that we have, you know. I I, I, I think I have an ego. I think I'm arrogant, you know. So the authors like Achikar or St. Isaac that ground you, put you in your place to know what you really are, is healthy. I've been a pharmacist for like 20 years. So there's just a lot of experience that I have. So some things are second nature to me, so I don't have to think about them. And I've been a priest for only four years, but I think priests kind of have to have an ego to want to become priests. Does this make sense? Yeah. I mean, you're going to get up in front of a thousand people and speak. you got to have some confidence, you know, otherwise you're going to be horrible analogy but I'm going to give it it reminds me of an old Rod Stewart story that when he used to perform he used to perform with his back to the audience because wow. he was always embarrassed to see them he had stage fright until like he got trained you know so imagine being a priest and you're preaching to people and you're facing the altar and they're all behind you like it defeats the purpose so I think priests have to have an ego in a sense and it sounds bad that I'm yeah. saying maybe more like confidence 
to be able to do this. But I think with that, it's easy to fall into having an ego and becoming proud and becoming prideful. You know, so the authors that ground you are, are good. It's healthy. You know, it gives you a balance. Mm-hmm. Robbie, we have listeners from all over the world. Uh-huh. What is one last thing that you'd like to impart or leave with them? More wisdom. You ask me these questions of imparting. I don't have any wisdom. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Peter. You took time out of your busy schedule. This is a great experience. It was a wonderful experience. It was very nice. Yeah. So I'm glad I did this. We're in a world that's changing really fast. And it's not just COVID and, and everything. That's part of it. We were talking about it earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, how pharmacy life changes with COVID. And it's, but it's not just COVID. It's... It's views on governments, it's views on Christianity. We're at a time right now where, as a community, as Syrians, we really need each other more than ever at this point. Because, you know, as as more generations come go forward and come along in America, that's more generations that are further and further away from our roots. And, you know, the connection will always be there, but it could be less strong of a connection mm-hmm. I, you know I was born in America so I cannot tell you <clears throat> how it was living in Iraq or Khabur or Lebanon you know my wife was born in Iran she was four years old when she came she has some memories but she's not going to say I, did, I lived like this and I lived yeah. like this at, at, a, at another that's a couple down the street in Al-Turai they're Syrians and from church and we were talking to them and you know he lived in Iraq and Baghdad, I mean, well into his early 20s, mid-20s, you know. So he really experienced what life was and how it was to be a Christian and a Syrian in a Muslim country. You know, and what he had to endure. And I was thinking to myself, like, man, I thought I had it rough because, you know, people were yelling at me during the hostages or, you know, the first Gulf War. I was like, Okay, this this guy legit. Yeah. You know, mine was was nothing. I think there has to be communication because every person has a story to tell and has a perspective. It could be the same story, but the perspective is going to be different. Like you and I Peter were both born in America. We can't experience what people born in the country Iraq Iran the Middle East Syria. We can't and we never will. I mean unless we go live there try to survive there, then we could say, yes, we experienced it. Mm-hmm. But no, we can't. But we'll have a perspective on a story that they will have a different perspective. And it could be the same story. It's just going to be a different perspective. And I think a lot of it is communication. We've lost communication with each other as a people, as a people. You know, we're going to disagree on many things. And that's what humans do. I mean, we're a family of five and sometimes we have 10 ideas. right I mean it happens and I think the most important thing is communication get to know your community if you're an Assyrian get to know the community you live in and what can you do to contribute to that community you you asked me what was what's my favorite thing or aspect of being a priest I'm gonna my favorite I'm gonna tell you what my favorite aspect thing of my job as a pharmacist is that I'm serving the community it's always coming back to service yeah I feel like I'm serving the community I live in, you know, and I work in and that I am part of. 
I mean, it's funny. I mean, we'll get done with the Raza and I'll come out of church and people are asking me about their medicines and this and that. And I'm like thinking, let me take the computer out here for a second. Yeah. You know, you're in the community. You're active in the community you live in. And I think that's the most important thing I would like to impart to them that if get active in your community, in your certain community. If it's through your church, great. If it's through some social organization, get active. Because... One of the, the, the pleasurable, enjoyable, gratifying parts of my job have been to see students or pharmacists now that came to volunteer with me years ago that they just wanted to shadow. You help them along and then you can get them hired somewhere, maybe not with you somewhere as a technician. And they, you get, you're able to help them get into, not get them in, but you're able to write recommendations and, you know, kind of guide them and mentor them into this career and then they're getting into pharmacy school and then they're graduating and next thing you know you're working with them sometimes that's real gratifying because you're like shouldn't our people succeed right why shouldn't our people succeed you know especially in the western world why shouldn't they succeed Mm -hmm. there's every opportunity the opportunities are there (laughs) but you know there was a time i could count the australian pharmacists that were around on, a, on one hand. Now, we have, we have a certain pharmacist. We have a certain doctors. We have a certain lawyers. We have a certain in physical therapy. We have a certain businessmen, entrepreneurs. I mean, we're not lacking. Get involved in the communities you're in and then serve. Help. Help the Assyrian community. I think I've tried to help as many as I can. And I don't know if I really have. That 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 would be my parting words. Obviously, going to church, raising yeah. your kids in the church. That, that goes without saying. That The disclaimer, asterisk, go to church, take your kids to church, don't miss Sundays. That's there. But in terms of being active in your community, if you're not active in your community, you're not really, you're not contributing to society. Mm-hmm. And if, if, if us as a people, as Assyrians, want to be recognized for who we are and what we are as a people... We have to be active and contribute to our societies. Every All the other people do it. All the other races, all the other ethnicities, all the other peoples, whatever category, however you want to categorize it, they contribute to society and that's what they're able to be recognized. We have to contribute to the societies we live in so they know who we are as a people. And then... Then we get recognition and then we're able to have certain rights and certain perks, you know, because we're part of the community you live in. Yeah. You know, so. Beautiful. Uh, You're welcome, Aziza. Thank you, Khay.